Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 8 of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Having infused by persistent importunities some sort of heat into the chilly interest of several licensed victuallers, the acquaintances once upon a time of her late unlucky husband, Mrs. Verloc's mother had at last secured her admission to certain almshouses, founded by a wealthy innkeeper for the destitute widows of the trade. This end, conceived in the astuteness of her uneasy heart, the old woman had pursued with secrecy and determination. That was the time when her daughter Winnie could not help passing a remark to Mr. Verloc that, Mother has been spending half-crowns and five shillings almost every day this last week in cab-fares." But the remark was not made grudgingly. Winnie respected her mother's infirmities. She was only a little surprised at this sudden mania for locomotion. Mr. Verloc, who was sufficiently magnificent in his way, had grunted the remark impatiently aside as interfering with his meditations. These were frequent, deep, and prolonged they bore upon a matter more important than five shillings. Distinctly more important, and beyond all comparison, more difficult to consider in all its aspects with philosophical serenity. Her object attained in astute secrecy, the heroic old woman had made a clean breast of it to Mrs. Verloc. Her soul was triumphant and her heart tremulous. Inwardly she quaked because she dreaded and admired the calm, self-contained character of her daughter Winnie, whose displeasure was made redoubtable by a diversity of dreadful silences. But she did not allow her inward apprehensions to rob her of the advantage of venerable placidity, conferred upon her outward person by her triple chin, the floating ampleness of her ancient form, and the impotent condition of her legs. The shock of the information was so unexpected that Mrs. Verloc, against her usual practice when addressed, interrupted the domestic occupation she was engaged upon. It was the dusting of the furniture in the parlour behind the shop. She turned her head towards her mother. "'Whatever did you want to do that for?' she exclaimed, in scandalised astonishment. The shock must have been severe to make her depart from that distant and uninquiring acceptance of facts which was her force and her safeguard in life. Weren't you made comfortable enough here?" She had lapsed into these inquiries, but next moment she saved the consistency of her conduct by resuming her dusting, while the old woman sat scared and dumb under her dingy white cap and lustreless dark wig. Winnie finished the chair, and ran the duster along the mahogany at the back of the horsehair sofa, on which Mr. Verloc loved to take his ease in hat and overcoat. She was intent on her work but presently she permitted herself another question. "'How in the world did you manage it, mother?' As not affecting the inwardness of things, which it was Mrs. Verloc's principle to ignore, this curiosity was excusable. It bore merely on the methods. The old woman welcomed it eagerly as bringing forward something that could be talked about with much sincerity. 
she favoured her daughter by an exhaustive answer, full of names and enriched by side-comments upon the ravages of time as observed in the alteration of human countenances. The names were principally the names of licensed victuallers. Poor Daddy's friends, my dear. She enlarged with special appreciation on the kindness and condescension of a large brewer, a baronet and an MP, the chairman of the governors of the charity. She expressed herself thus warmly because she had been allowed to interview by appointment his private secretary. A very polite gentleman, all in black, with a gentle sad voice, but so very, very thin and quiet. He was like a shadow, my dear." Winnie, prolonging her dusting operations till the tale was told to the end, walked out of the parlour into the kitchen, down two steps, in her usual manner, without the slightest comment. Shedding a few tears in sign of rejoicing at her daughter's mansuetude in this terrible affair, Mrs. Verloc's mother gave play to her astuteness in the direction of her furniture, because it was her own, and sometimes she wished it hadn't been. Heroism is all very well, but there are circumstances when the disposal of a few tables and chairs, brass bedsteads and so on, may be big with remote and disastrous consequences. She required a few pieces herself, the foundation which, after many importunities, had gathered her to its charitable breast, giving nothing but bare planks and cheaply papered bricks to the objects of its solicitude the delicacy guiding her choice to the least valuable and most dilapidated articles passed unacknowledged, because Winnie's philosophy consisted in not taking notice of the inside of facts. She assumed that Mother took what suited her best. As to Mr. Verloc, his intense meditation, like a sort of Chinese wall, isolated him completely from the phenomena of this world of vain effort and illusory appearances. Her selection made, the disposal of the rest became a perplexing question in a particular way. She was leaving it in Brett Street, of course. But she had two children. Winnie was provided for by her sensible union with that excellent husband, Mr. Verloc. Stevie was destitute, and a little peculiar. His position had to be considered before the claims of legal justice and even the promptings of partiality. The possession of the furniture would not be in any sense a provision. He ought to have it, the poor boy. But to give it to him would be like tampering with his position of complete dependence. It was a sort of claim which she feared to weaken. Moreover, the susceptibilities of Mr. Verloc would perhaps not brook being beholden to his brother-in-law for the chairs he sat on. In a long experience of gentlemen lodgers, Mrs. Verloc's mother had acquired a dismal but resigned notion of the fantastic side of human nature. What if Mr. Verloc suddenly took it into his head to tell Stevie to take his blessed sticks somewhere out of that? A division, on the other hand, however carefully made, might give some cause of offence to Winnie. No, Stevie must remain destitute and dependent. And at the moment of leaving Brett Street she had said to her daughter, "'No use waiting till I'm dead, is there? Everything I leave here is altogether your own now, my dear.' Winnie with her hat on, silent behind her mother's back, went on arranging the collar of the old woman's cloak. She got her handbag, an umbrella, with an impassive face. The time had come for the expenditure of the sum of three and sixpence on what might well be supposed the last cab-drive of Mrs. Verloc's mother's life. They went out at the shop door. 
the conveyance awaiting them would have illustrated the proverb that truth can be more cruel than caricature, if such a proverb existed. Crawling behind an infirm horse, a metropolitan hackney-carriage drew up on wobbly wheels, and with a maimed driver on the box. This last peculiarity caused some embarrassment. Catching sight of a hooked iron contrivance protruding from the left sleeve of the man's coat, Mrs. Verloc's mother lost suddenly the heroic courage of these days. She really couldn't trust herself. "'What do you think, Winnie?' She hung back. The passionate postulations of the big-faced cabman seemed to be squeezed out of a blocked throat. Leaning over from his box, he whispered with mysterious indignation, "'What was the matter now? Was it possible to treat a man so?' His enormous and unwashed countenance flamed red in the muddy stretch of the street. "'Was it likely they would have given him a license?' he inquired desperately. "'If—the police constable of the locality quieted him by a friendly glance, then addressing himself to the two women without marked consideration, said, "'He's been driving a cab for twenty years. I never knew him to have an accident.' "'Accident!' shouted the driver in a scornful whisper. The policeman's testimony settled it. The modest assemblage of seven people, mostly under age, dispersed. Winnie followed her mother into the cab. Stevie climbed on the box. His vacant mouth and distressed eyes depicted the state of his mind in regard to the transactions which were taking place. In the narrow streets, the progress of the journey was made sensible to those within, by the near fronts of the houses gliding past slowly and shakily, with a great rattle and jingling of glass, as if about to collapse behind the cab, and the infirm horse, with the harness hung over his sharp backbone, flapping very loose about his thighs, appeared to be dancing mincingly on his toes with infinite patience. Later on, in the wider space of Whitehall, all visual evidences of motion became imperceptible. The rattle and jingle of glass went on indefinitely in front of the long treasury building, and time itself seemed to stand still. At last Winnie observed, "'This isn't a very good horse.' Her eyes gleamed in the shadow of the cab straight ahead, immovable. On the box Stevie shut his vacant mouth first, in order to ejaculate earnestly, don't!" The driver, holding high the reins twisted around the hook, took no notice. Perhaps he had not heard. Stevie's breast heaved. "'Don't whip!' The man turned slowly his bloated and sodden face of many colours, bristling with white hairs. His little red eyes glistened with moisture. His big lips had a violet tint. They remained closed. With the dirty back of his whip-hand he rubbed the stubble sprouting on his enormous chin. "'You mustn't,' stammered out Stevie violently. "'It hurts.' "'Mustn't whip,' queried the other in a thoughtful whisper, and immediately whipped. He did this not because his soul was cruel and his heart evil, but because he had to earn his fare. And for a time the walls of St. Stephen's, with its towers and pinnacles, contemplated in immobility and silence a cab that jingled. It rolled, too, however. But on the bridge there was a commotion. Stevie suddenly proceeded to get down from the box. There were shouts on the pavement, people ran forward, 
the driver pulled up, whispering curses of indignation and astonishment. Winnie lowered the window and put her head out, white as a ghost. In the depths of the cab her mother was exclaiming, in tones of anguish, "'Is that boy hurt? Is that boy hurt?' Stevie was not hurt. He had not even fallen, but excitement as usual had robbed him of the power of connected speech. He could do no more than stammer at the window. "'Too heavy! Too heavy!' Winnie put out her hand on to his shoulder. "'Stevie, get up on the box directly, and don't try to get down again.' "'No! Walk! Must walk!' In trying to state the nature of that necessity he stammered himself into utter incoherence. No physical impossibility stood in the way of his whim. Stevie could have managed easily to keep pace with the infirm, dancing horse without getting out of breath. But his sister withheld her consent decisively. "'The idea! Who ever heard of such a thing? Run after a cab!' Her mother, frightened and helpless in the depths of the conveyance, entreated, "'Oh, don't let him, Winnie! He'll get lost! Don't let him!' "'Certainly not! What next? Mr. Verloc will be sorry to hear of this nonsense, Stevie, I can tell you. He won't be happy at all." The idea of Mr. Verloc's grief and unhappiness, acting as usual powerfully upon Stevie's fundamentally docile disposition, he abandoned all resistance, and climbed up again on the box, with a face of despair. The cabby turned at him his enormous and inflamed countenance truculently. "'Don't you go for trying this silly game again, young fellow!' After delivering himself thus in a stern whisper, strained almost to extinction, he drove on, ruminating solemnly. To his mind the incident remained somewhat obscure. But his intellect, though it had lost its pristine vivacity in the benumbing years of sedentary exposure to the weather, lacked not independence or sanity. Gravely he dismissed the hypothesis of Stevie being a drunken young nipper. Inside the cab, the spell of silence, in which the two women had endured shoulder to shoulder the jolting, rattling and jingling of the journey, had been broken by Stevie's outbreak. Winnie raised her voice. "'You've done what you wanted, mother. You'll have only yourself to thank for it if you aren't happy afterwards. And I don't think you'll be. That I don't. Weren't you comfortable enough in the house? Whatever people'll think of us, you throwing yourself like this on a charity." "'My dear,' screamed the old woman earnestly above the noise, "'you've been the best of daughters to me. As to Mr. Verloc, there!' Words failing her on the subject of Mr. Verloc's excellence, she turned her old, tearful eyes to the roof of the cab. Then she averted her head on the pretence of looking out of the window, as if to judge of their progress. It was insignificant, and went on close to the curbstone. Night, the early dirty night, the sinister, noisy, hopeless and rowdy night of South London, had overtaken her on her last cab-drive. In the gaslight of the low-fronted shops, her big cheeks glowed with an orange hue under a black and mauve bonnet. Mrs. Verloc's mother's complexion had become yellow by the effect of age, and from a natural predisposition to biliousness, favoured by the trials of a difficult and worried existence, first as wife, then as widow. It was a complexion that under the influence of a blush would take on an orange tint. And this woman, modest indeed, 
but hardened in the fires of adversity, of an age, moreover, when blushes are not expected, had positively blushed before her daughter. In the privacy of a four-wheeler, on her way to a charity cottage, one of a row, which, by the exiguity of its dimensions and the simplicity of its accommodation, might well have been devised in kindness as a place of training for the still more straitened circumstances of the grave, she was forced to hide from her own child a blush of remorse and shame. Whatever people will think. She knew very well what they did think, the people Winnie had in her mind, the old friends of her husband, and others too, whose interest she had solicited with such flattering success. She had not known before what a good beggar she could be. But she guessed very well what inference was drawn from her application. On account of that shrinking delicacy, which exists side by side with aggressive brutality in masculine nature, the inquiries into her circumstances had not been pushed very far. She had checked them by a visible compression of the lips, and some display of an emotion determined to be eloquently silent. And the men would become suddenly incurious, after the manner of their kind. She congratulated herself more than once on having nothing to do with women, who being naturally more callous and avid of details, would have been anxious to be exactly informed by what sort of unkind conduct her daughter and son-in-law had driven her to that sad extremity. It was only before the secretary of the great brewer, M.P. and chairman of the charity, who, acting for his principal, felt bound to be conscientiously inquisitive as to the real circumstances of the applicant, that she had burst into tears outright and aloud, as a cornered woman will weep. The thin and polite gentleman, after contemplating her with an air of being struck all of a heap, abandoned his position under the cover of soothing remarks. She must not distress herself. The deed of the charity did not absolutely specify childless widows. In fact, it did not by any means disqualify her. But the discretion of the committee must be an informed discretion. One could understand very well her unwillingness to be a burden, etc., etc. Thereupon, to his profound disappointment, Mrs. Verloc's mother wept some more with an augmented vehemence. The tears of that large female, in a dark, dusty wig, and ancient silk dress festooned with dingy white cotton lace, were the tears of genuine distress. She had wept because she was heroic, and unscrupulous, and full of love for both her children. Girls frequently get sacrificed to the welfare of the boys. In this case she was sacrificing Winnie. By the suppression of truth she was slandering her. Of course Winnie was independent, and need not care for the opinion of people that she would never see, and who would never see her, whereas poor Stevie had nothing in the world he could call his own, except his mother's heroism and unscrupulousness. The first sense of security following on Winnie's marriage wore off in time, for nothing lasts, and Mrs. Verloc's mother, in the seclusion of the back bedroom, had recalled the teaching of that experience which the world impresses upon a widowed woman. But she had recalled it without vain bitterness, her store of resignation amounted almost to dignity. She reflected stoically that everything decays, wears out in this world, that the way of kindness should be made easy to the well-disposed, that her daughter Winnie was a most devoted sister, and a very self-confident wife indeed. As regards Winnie's sisterly devotion, her stoicism flinched. 
she accepted that sentiment from the rule of decay affecting all things human and some things divine. She could not help it, not to do so would have frightened her too much. But in considering the conditions of her daughter's married state she rejected firmly all flattering illusions. She took the cold and reasonable view that the less strain put on Mr. Verloc's kindness the longer its effects were likely to last. That excellent man loved his wife, of course, but he would, no doubt, prefer to keep as few of her relations as was consistent with the proper display of that sentiment. It would be better if its whole effect were concentrated on poor Stevie. And the heroic old woman resolved on going away from her children as an act of devotion and as a move of deep policy. The virtue of this policy consisted in this. Mrs. Verloc's mother was subtle in her way, that Stevie's moral claim would be strengthened. The poor boy, a good, useful boy, if a little peculiar, had not a sufficient standing. He had been taken over with his mother, somewhat in the same way as the furniture of the Belgravian mansion had been taken over, as if on the ground of belonging to her exclusively. "'What will happen?' she asked herself, for Mrs. Verloc's mother was, in a measure, imaginative when I die." And when she asked herself that question it was with dread. It was also terrible to think that she would not then have the means of knowing what happened to the poor boy. But by making him over to his sister, by going thus away, she gave him the advantage of a directly dependent position. This was the more subtle sanction of Mrs. Verloc's mother's heroism and unscrupulousness. Her act of abandonment was really an arrangement for settling her son permanently in life. Other people made material sacrifices for such an object, she in that way. It was the only way. Moreover, she would be able to see how it worked. Ill or well, she would avoid the horrible incertitude on the deathbed. But it was hard, hard, cruelly hard. The cab rattled, jingled, jolted. In fact, the last was quite extraordinary. By its disproportionate violence and magnitude it obliterated every sensation of onward movement, and the effect was of being shaken in a stationary apparatus, like a medieval device for the punishment of crime, or some very new-fangled invention for the cure of a sluggish liver. It was extremely distressing, and the raising of Mrs. Verloc's mother's voice sounded like a wail of pain. "'I know, my dear, you'll come to see me as often as you can spare the time, won't you?' "'Of course,' answered Winnie shortly, staring straight before her. And the cab jolted in front of a steamy, greasy shop, in a blaze of gas and in the smell of fried fish. The old woman raised a wail again. "'And, my dear, I must see that poor boy every Sunday. He won't mind spending the day with his old mother.' Winnie screamed out stolidly. "'Mind? I should think not. That poor boy will miss you something cruel. I wish you had thought a little of that, mother." Not think of it. The heroic woman swallowed a playful and inconvenient object like a billiard-ball, which had tried to jump out of her throat. Winnie sat mute for a while, pouting at the front of the cab, then snapped out, which was an unusual tone with her. "'I expect I'll have a job with him at first. He'll be that restless.' "'Whatever you do, don't let him worry your husband, my dear.' Thus they discussed on familiar lines the bearing of a new situation. And the cab jolted. 
Mrs. Verloc's mother expressed some misgivings. Could Stevie be trusted to come all that way alone? Winnie maintained that he was much less absent-minded now. They agreed as to that. It could not be denied. Much less, hardly at all. They shouted at each other in the jingle with comparative cheerfulness. But suddenly the maternal anxiety broke out afresh. There were two omnibuses to take, and a short walk between. It was too difficult. The old woman gave way to grief and consternation. Winnie stared forward. "'Don't you upset yourself like this, mother. You must see him, of course.' "'No, my dear, I'll try not to.' She mopped her streaming eyes. "'But you can't spare the time to come with him. And if he should forget himself and lose his way, and someone spoke to him sharply, his name and address may slip his memory, and he'll remain lost for days and days." The vision of a workhouse infirmary for poor Stevie, if only during inquiries, wrung her heart. For she was a proud woman. Winnie's stare had grown hard, intent, inventive. "'I can't bring him to you myself every week,' she cried. "'But don't you worry, mother. I'll see to it that he doesn't get lost for long." They felt a peculiar bump. A vision of brick pillars lingered before the rattling windows of the cab. A sudden cessation of atrocious jolting and uproarious jingling dazed the two women. What had happened? They sat motionless and scared in the profound stillness, till the door came open, and a rough, strained whispering was heard. "'Here you are!' A range of gabled little houses each with one dim yellow window on the ground floor, surrounded the dark open space of a grass-plot planted with shrubs, and railed off from the patchwork of lights and shadows in the wide road, resounding with the dull rumble of traffic. Before the door of one of these tiny houses—one without a light in the little downstairs window—the cab had come to a standstill. Mrs. Verloc's mother got out first, backwards, with a key in her hand. Winnie lingered on the flagstone path to pay the cabman. Stevie, after helping to carry inside a lot of small parcels, came out and stood under the light of a gas-lamp belonging to the charity. The cabman looked at the pieces of silver, which, appearing very minute in his big, grimy palm, symbolised the insignificant results which reward the ambitious courage and toil of a mankind whose day is short on this earth of evil. He had been paid decently—four one-shilling pieces—and he contemplated them in perfect stillness, as if they had been the surprising terms of a melancholy problem. The slow transfer of that treasure to an inner pocket demanded much laborious groping in the depths of decayed clothing. His form was squat and without flexibility. Stevie, slender, his shoulders a little up, and his hands thrust deep in the side pockets of his warm overcoat, stood at the edge of the path, pouting. The cabman, pausing in his deliberate movements, seemed struck by some misty recollection. "'Oh, here you are, young fellow,' he whispered. "'You'll know him again, won't you?' Stevie was staring at the horse, whose hind quarters appeared unduly elevated by the effect of emaciation. The little stiff tail seemed to have been fitted in for a heartless joke, and at the other end, the thin, flat neck, like a plank covered with old horsehide, drooped to the ground under the weight of an enormous bony head. The ears hung at different angles, negligently, 
and the macabre figure of that mute dweller on the earth steamed straight up from ribs and backbone in the muggy stillness of the air. The cabman struck lightly Stevie's breast with the iron hook protruding from a ragged, greasy sleeve. "'Look here, young feller. How do you like to sit behind this oss up to two o'clock in the morning, p'raps?' Stevie looked vacantly into the fierce little eyes with red-edged lids. "'He ain't lame,' pursued the other, whispering with energy. "'He ain't got no sore places on him. Here he is. How would you like?' His strained, extinct voice invested his utterance with a character of vehement secrecy. Stevie's vacant gaze was changing slowly into dread. "'You may well look. Till three and four in the morning. Cold and hungry. Looking for fares. Drunks.' His jovial purple cheeks bristled with white hairs, and like Virgil's Silenus, who, his face smeared with the juice of berries, discoursed of Olympian gods to the innocent shepherds of Sicily, he talked to Stevie of domestic matters, and the affairs of men whose sufferings are great and immortality by no means assured. "'I am a nightcabby, I am,' he whispered, with a sort of boastful exasperation. "'I've got to take out what they will blooming well give me at the yard. I've got my missus and four kids at home." The monstrous nature of that declaration of paternity seemed to strike the world dumb. A silence reigned, during which the flanks of the old horse, the steed of apocalyptic misery, smoked upwards in the light of the charitable gas-lamp. The cabman grunted, then added in his mysterious whisper, "'This ain't an easy world.' Stevie's face had been twitching for some time, and at last his feelings burst out in their usual concise form. "'Bad! Bad!' His gaze remained fixed on the ribs of the horse, self-conscious and sombre, as though he were afraid to look about him at the badness of the world. And his slenderness, his rosy lips and pale, clear complexion, gave him the aspect of a delicate boy, notwithstanding the fluffy growth of golden hair on his cheeks. He pouted in a scared way like a child. The cabman, short and broad, eyed him with his fierce little eyes that seemed to smart in a clear and corroding liquid. "'Hard on horses, but damn sight harder on poor chaps like me,' he wheezed just audibly. "'Poor, poor!' stammered out Stevie, pushing his hands deeper into his pockets with convulsive sympathy. He could say nothing for the tenderness to all pain and all misery, the desire to make the horse happy and the cabman happy, had reached the point of a bizarre longing to take them to bed with him. And that, he knew, was impossible. For Stevie was not mad. It was, as it were, a symbolic longing, and at the same time it was very distinct, because, springing from experience, the mother of wisdom. Thus, when as a child he cowered in a dark corner, scared, wretched, sore and miserable, with the black, black misery of the soul, his sister Winnie used to come along and carry him off to bed with her, as into a heaven of consoling peace. Stevie, though apt to forget mere facts, such as his name and address, for instance, had a faithful memory of sensations. To be taken into a bed of compassion was the supreme remedy with the only one disadvantage of being difficult of application on a large scale. And, looking at the cabman, Stevie perceived this clearly, because he was reasonable. 
The cabman went on with his leisurely preparations as if Stevie had not existed. He made as if to hoist himself on the box, but, at the last moment, from some obscure motive, perhaps merely from disgust with carriage exercise, desisted. He approached instead the motionless partner of his labours, and, stooping to seize the bridle, lifted up the big, weary head to the height of his shoulder with one effort of his right arm, like a feat of strength. "'Come on,' he whispered secretly. Limping, he led the cab away. There was an air of austerity in this departure, the scrunched gravel of the drive crying out under the slowly turning wheels, the horse's lean thighs moving with ascetic deliberation, away from the light, into the obscurity of the open space, bordered dimly by the pointed roofs and the feebly shining windows of the little almshouses. The plaint of the gravel travelled slowly all round the drive. Between the lamps of the charitable gateway, the slow cortege reappeared, lighted up for a moment, the short, thick man limping busily, with the horse's head held aloft in his fist, the lank animal walking in stiff and forlorn dignity, the dark, low box on wheels rolling behind comically, with an air of waddling. They turned to the left. There was a pub down the street, within fifty yards of the gate. Stevie, left alone beside the private lamp-post of the charity, his hands thrust deep into his pockets, glared with vacant sulkiness. At the bottom of his pockets his incapable weak hands were clinched hard into a pair of angry fists. In the face of anything which affected directly or indirectly his morbid dread of pain, Stevie ended by turning vicious. A magnanimous indignation swelled his frail chest to bursting, and caused his candid eyes to squint. Supremely wise in knowing his own powerlessness, Stevie was not wise enough to restrain his passions. The tenderness of his universal charity had two phases, as indissolubly joined and connected as the reverse and obverse sides of a medal. The anguish of immoderate compassion was succeeded by the pain of an innocent but pitiless rage. Those two states expressing themselves outwardly by the same signs of futile bodily agitation, his sister Winnie soothed his excitement without ever fathoming its twofold character. Mrs. Verloc wasted no portion of this transient life in seeking for fundamental information. This is a sort of economy, having all the appearances and some of the advantages of prudence. Obviously it may be good for one not to know too much. And such a view accords very well with constitutional indolence. On that evening, on which it may be said that Mrs. Verloc's mother, having parted for good from her children, had also departed this life, Winnie Verloc did not investigate her brother's psychology. The poor boy was excited, of course. After once more assuring the old woman on the threshold that she would know how to guard against the risk of Stevie losing himself for very long on his pilgrimages of filial piety, she took her brother's arm to walk away. Stevie did not even mutter to himself, but with the special sense of sisterly devotion developed in her earliest infancy, she felt that the boy was very much excited indeed. Holding tight to his arm, under the appearance of leaning on it, she thought of some words suitable to the occasion. "'Now, Stevie, you must look well after me at the crossings, and get first into the bus like a good brother.' This appeal to manly protection was received by Stevie with his usual docility. It flattered him. He raised his head and threw out his chest. 
"'Don't be nervous, Winnie. Mustn't be nervous. Bustle right,' he answered, in a brusque, slurring stammer, partaking of the timorousness of a child and the resolution of a man. He advanced fearlessly with the woman on his arm, but his lower lip dropped. Nevertheless, on the pavement of the squalid and wide thoroughfare, whose poverty in all the amenities of life stood foolishly exposed by a mad profusion of gaslights, their resemblance to each other was so pronounced as to strike the casual passers-by. Before the doors of the public-house at the corner, where the profusion of gaslight reached the height of positive wickedness, a four-wheeled cab standing by the curbstone with no one on the box, seemed cast out into the gutter on account of irremedial decay. Mrs. Verloc recognised the conveyance. Its aspect was so profoundly lamentable, with such a perfection of grotesque misery and weirdness of macabre detail, as if it were the cab of death itself, that Mrs. Verloc, with that ready compassion of a woman for a horse, when she is not sitting behind him, exclaimed vaguely, "'Poor brute!' Hanging back suddenly, Stevie inflicted an arresting jerk upon his sister. "'Poor! Poor!' he ejaculated appreciatively. "'Cabman poor, too! He told me himself!' The contemplation of the infirm and lonely steed overcame him. Jostled but obstinate, he would remain there, trying to express the view newly opened to his sympathies of the human and equine misery in close association. But it was very difficult. "'Poor brute! Poor people!' was all he could repeat. It did not seem forcible enough, and he came to a stop with an angry splutter. Shame! Stevie was no master of phrases, and perhaps for that very reason his thoughts lacked clearness and precision. But he felt with greater completeness and some profundity. That little word contained all his sense of indignation and horror, at one sort of wretchedness having to feed upon the anguish of the other, at the poor cabman beating the poor horse, in the name, as it were, of his poor kids at home. And Stevie knew what it was to be beaten. He knew it from experience. It was a bad world—bad, bad. Mrs. Verloc, his only sister, guardian and protector, could not pretend to such depths of insight. Moreover, she had not experienced the magic of the cabman's eloquence. She was in the dark as to the inwardness of the word shame. And she said, placidly, "'Come along, Stevie. You can't help that.' The docile Stevie went along, but now he went along without pride, shamblingly, and muttering half-words, and even words that would have been whole, if they had not been made up of halves that did not belong to each other. It was as though he had been trying to fit all the words he could remember to his sentiments, in order to get some sort of corresponding idea. And, as a matter of fact, he got it at last. He hung back to utter it at once. Bad world for poor people! Directly he had expressed that thought, he became aware that it was familiar to him already in all its consequences. This circumstance strengthened his conviction immensely, but also augmented his indignation. Somebody, he felt, ought to be punished for it, punished with great severity. Being no sceptic but a moral creature, he was, in a manner, at the mercy of his righteous passions. "'Beastly!' he added concisely. It was clear to Mrs. Verloc that he was greatly excited. "'Nobody can help that,' she said. "'Do come along. 
Is that the way you're taking care of me?' Stevie mended his pace obediently. He prided himself on being a good brother. His morality, which was very complete, demanded that from him. Yet he was pained at the information imparted by his sister Winnie, who was good. Nobody could help that. He came along gloomily, but presently he brightened up. Like the rest of mankind, perplexed by the mystery of the universe, he had his moments of consoling trust in the organized powers of the earth. "'Police!' he suggested confidently. "'The police aren't for that,' observed Mrs. Verloc cursorily, hurrying on her way. Stevie's face lengthened considerably. He was thinking. The more intense his thinking, the slacker was the droop of his lower jaw. And it was with an aspect of hopeless vacancy that he gave up his intellectual enterprise. "'Not for that,' he mumbled, resigned but surprised. "'Not for that!' He had formed for himself an ideal conception of the Metropolitan Police as a sort of benevolent institution for the suppression of evil. The notion of benevolence especially was very closely associated with his sense of the power of the men in blue. He had liked all police constables tenderly, with a guileless trustfulness. And he was pained. He was irritated, too, by a suspicion of duplicity in the members of the force. For Stevie was frank and as open as the day himself. What did they mean by pretending, then? Unlike his sister, who put her trust in face values, he wished to go to the bottom of the matter. He carried on his inquiry by means of an angry challenge. "'What for are they, then, Wynne? What are they for? Tell me!' Winnie disliked controversy. But fearing most a fit of black depression, consequent on Stevie missing his mother very much at first, she did not altogether decline the discussion. Guiltless of all irony, she answered yet in a form which was perhaps not unnatural in the wife of Mr. Verloc, delegate of the Central Red Committee, personal friend of certain anarchists, and a votary of social revolution. "'Don't you know what the police are for, Stevie?' They are there so that them as have nothing shouldn't take anything away from them who have." She avoided using the verb to steal, because it always made her brother uncomfortable. For Stevie was delicately honest. Certain simple principles had been instilled into him so anxiously, on account of his queerness, that the mere names of certain transgressions filled him with horror. He had always been easily impressed by speeches. He was impressed and startled now and his intelligence was very alert. "'What?' he asked at once, anxiously. "'Not even if they were hungry. Mustn't they?' The two had paused in their walk. "'Not if they were ever so,' said Mrs. Verloc, with the equanimity of a person untroubled by the problem of the distribution of wealth, and exploring the perspective of the roadway for an omnibus of the right colour. "'Certainly not. But what's the use of talking about all that?' You aren't ever hungry." She cast a swift glance at the boy, like a young man by her side. She saw him amiable, attractive, affectionate, and only a little, a very little, peculiar. And she could not see him otherwise, for he was connected with what there was of the salt of passion in her tasteless life, the passion of indignation, of courage, of pity, and even of self-sacrifice. She did not add. And you aren't likely ever to be as long as I live." But she might very well have done so, 
since she had taken effectual steps to that end. Mr. Verloc was a very good husband. It was her honest impression that nobody could help liking the boy. She cried out suddenly, "'Quick, Stevie! Stop that green bus!' And Stevie, tremulous and important, with his sister Winnie on his arm, flung up the other high above his head at the approaching bus, with complete success. An hour afterwards, Mr. Verloc raised his eyes from a newspaper he was reading, or at any rate looking at, behind the counter, and in the expiring clatter of the doorbell beheld Winnie, his wife, enter and cross the shop on her way upstairs, followed by Stevie, his brother-in-law. The sight of his wife was agreeable to Mr. Verloc. It was his idiosyncrasy. The figure of his brother-in-law remained imperceptible to him, because of the morose thoughtfulness that had lately fallen like a veil between Mr. Verloc and the appearances of the world of senses. He looked after his wife fixedly, without a word, as though she had been a phantom. His voice for home use was husky and placid, but now it was not heard at all. It was not heard at supper, to which he was called by his wife in the usual brief manner. Adolf! He sat down to consume it without conviction, wearing his hat pushed far back on his head. It was not devotion to an outdoor life, but the frequentation of foreign cafés which was responsible for that habit, investing with a character of unceremonious impermanency Mr. Verloc's steady fidelity to his own fireside. Twice, at the clatter of the cracked bell, he arose without a word, disappeared into the shop, and came back silently. During these absences Mrs. Verloc, becoming acutely aware of the vacant place at her right hand, missed her mother very much, and stared stonily, while Stevie, from the same reason, kept on shuffling his feet, as though the floor under the table were uncomfortably hot. When Mr. Verloc returned to sit in his place, like the very embodiment of silence, the character of Mrs. Verloc's stare underwent a subtle change, and Stevie ceased to fidget with his feet, because of his great and awed regard for his sister's husband. He directed at him glances of respectful compassion. Mr. Verloc was sorry. His sister Winnie had impressed upon him, in the omnibus, that Mr. Verloc would be found at home in a state of sorrow, and must not be worried. His father's anger, the irritability of gentlemen lodgers, and Mr. Verloc's predisposition to immoderate grief, had been the main sanctions of Stevie's self-restraint. Of these sentiments, all easily provoked, but not always easy to understand, the last had the greatest moral efficiency, because Mr. Verloc was good. His mother and his sister had established that ethical fact on an unshakable foundation. They had established, erected, consecrated it behind Mr. Verloc's back, for reasons that had nothing to do with abstract morality. And Mr. Verloc was not aware of it. It is but bare justice to him to say that he had no notion of appearing good to Stevie. Yet so it was. He was even the only man so qualified in Stevie's knowledge, because the gentlemen lodgers had been too transient and too remote to have anything very distinct about them, but perhaps their boots. And as regards the disciplinary measures of his father, the desolation of his mother and sister shrank from setting up a theory of goodness before the victim. It would have been too cruel and it was even possible that Stevie would not have believed them. As far as Mr. Verloc was concerned, nothing could stand in the way of Stevie's belief. Mr. Verloc was obviously, yet mysteriously, good. 
and the grief of a good man is august. Stevie gave glances of reverential compassion to his brother-in-law. Mr. Verloc was sorry. The brother of Winnie had never before felt himself in such close communion with the mystery of that man's goodness. It was an understandable sorrow. And Stevie himself was sorry. He was very sorry. The same sort of sorrow. And his attention being drawn to this unpleasant state, Stevie shuffled his feet. His feelings were habitually manifested by the agitation of his limbs. "'Keep your feet quiet, dear,' said Mrs. Verloc with authority and tenderness. Then, turning towards her husband, in an indifferent voice, the masterly achievement of instinctive tact, "'Are you going out to-night?' she asked. The mere suggestion seemed repugnant to Mr. Verloc. He shook his head moodily, and then sat still with downcast eyes, looking at the piece of cheese on his plate for a whole minute. At the end of that time he got up and went out went right out in the clatter of the shop-door bell. He acted thus inconsistently, not from any desire to make himself unpleasant, but because of an unconquerable restlessness. It was no earthly good going out. He could not find anywhere in London what he wanted. But he went out. He led a cortege of dismal thoughts along dark streets, through lighted streets, in and out of two flash bars, as if in a half-hearted attempt to make a night of it, and finally back again to his menaced home, where he sat down fatigued behind the counter, and they crowded urgently round him like a pack of hungry black hounds. After locking up the house and putting out the gas, he took them upstairs with him, a dreadful escort for a man going to bed. His wife had preceded him some time before, and with her ample form defined vaguely under the counterpane, her head on the pillow and a hand under the cheek, offered to his distraction the view of early drowsiness, arguing the possession of an equable soul. Her big eyes stared wide open, inert and dark against the snowy whiteness of the linen. She did not move. She had an equable soul. She felt profoundly that things do not stand much looking into. She made her force and her wisdom of that instinct but the taciturnity of Mr. Verloc had been lying heavily upon her for a good many days. It was, as a matter of fact, affecting her nerves. Recumbent and motionless, she said placidly, "'You'll catch cold walking about in your socks like this.' This speech, becoming the solicitude of the wife and the prudence of the woman, took Mr. Verloc unawares. He had left his boots downstairs, but he had forgotten to put on his slippers, and he had been turning about the bedroom on noiseless pads like a bear in a cage. At the sound of his wife's voice, he stopped and stared at her with a snambulistic, expressionless gaze, so long that Mrs. Verloc moved her limbs slightly under the bedclothes. But she did not move her black head sunk in the white pillow, one hand under her cheek, and the big, dark, unwinking eyes. Under her husband's expressionless stare, and remembering her mother's empty room across the landing, she felt an acute pang of loneliness. She had never been parted from her mother before. They had stood by each other. She felt that they had, and she said to herself that now mother was gone, gone for good. Mrs. Verloc had no illusions. Stevie remained, however. And she said, "'Mother's done what she wanted to do. There's no sense in it that I can see. 
I'm sure she couldn't have thought you had had enough of her. It's perfectly wicked leaving us like that." Mr. Verloc was not a well-read person, his range of elusive phrases was limited, but there was a peculiar aptness in circumstances which made him think of rats leaving a doomed ship. He very nearly said so. He had grown suspicious and embittered. Could it be that the old woman had such an excellent nose? But the unreasonableness of such a suspicion was patent, and Mr. Verloc held his tongue. Not altogether, however. He muttered heavily, "'Perhaps it's just as well.' He began to undress. Mrs. Verloc kept very still, perfectly still, with her eyes fixed in a dreamy, quiet stare. And her heart, for the fraction of a second, seemed to stand still too. That night she was not quite herself, as the saying is, and it was borne upon her with some force that a simple sentence may hold several diverse meanings, mostly disagreeable. How was it just as well, and why? But she did not allow herself to fall into the idleness of barren speculation. She was rather confirmed in her belief that things did not stand being looked into. Practical and subtle in her way, she brought Stevie to the front without loss of time, because in her the singleness of purpose had the unerring nature and force of an instinct. "'What I am going to do to cheer that boy up for the first few days I'm sure I don't know. He'll be worrying himself from morning till night till he gets used to mother being away. And he's such a good boy. I couldn't do without him.' Mr. Verloc went on divesting himself of his clothing, with the unnoticing inward concentration of a man undressing in the solitude of a vast and hopeless desert. For thus inhospitably did this fair earth, our common inheritance, present itself to the mental vision of Mr. Verloc. All was so still without and within, that the lonely ticking of the clock on the landing stole into the room, as if for the sake of company. Mr. Verloc, getting into bed on his own side, remained prone and mute behind Mrs. Verloc's back. His thick arms rested abandoned on the outside of the counterpane like dropped weapons, like discarded tools. At that moment he was within a hair's breadth of making a clean breast of it all to his wife. The moment seemed propitious. Looking out of the corners of his eyes, he saw her ample shoulders draped in white, the back of her head, with the hair done for the night in three plaits tied up with black tapes at the ends. And he forbore. Mr. Verloc loved his wife as a wife should be loved, that is, maritally, with the regard one has for one's chief possession. This head arranged for the night, those ample shoulders, had an aspect of familiar sacredness, the sacredness of domestic peace. She moved not, massive and shapeless like a recumbent statue in the rough. He remembered her wide-open eyes looking into the empty room. She was mysterious, with the mysteriousness of living beings. The far-famed secret agent, Delta, of the late Baron Stott-Wardenheim's alarmist dispatches, was not the man to break into such mysteries. He was easily intimidated. And he was also indolent, with the indolence which is so often the secret of good nature. He forbore touching that mystery out of love, timidity, and indolence. There would be always time enough. For several minutes he bore his suffering silently in the drowsy silence of the room. And then he disturbed it by a resolute declaration. 
I am going on the continent to-morrow." His wife might have fallen asleep already. He could not tell. As a matter of fact, Mrs. Verloc had heard him. Her eyes remained very wide open, and she lay very still, confirmed in her instinctive conviction that things don't bear looking into very much. And yet it was nothing very unusual for Mr. Verloc to take such a trip. He renewed his stock from Paris and Brussels. Often he went over to make his purchases personally. A little select connection of amateurs was forming around the shop in Brett Street, a secret connection eminently proper for any business undertaken by Mr. Verloc, who, by a mystic accord of temperament and necessity, had been set apart to be a secret agent all his life. He waited for a while, then added, "'I'll be away a week, or perhaps a fortnight. Get Mrs. Neal to come for the day.' Mrs. Neal was the charwoman of Brett Street. Victim of her marriage with a debauched joiner, she was oppressed by the needs of many infant children. Red-armed and aproned in coarse sacking up to the armpits, she exhaled the anguish of the poor, in a breath of soapsuds and rum, in the uproar of scrubbing, in the clatter of tin pails. Mrs. Verloc, full of deep purpose, spoke in the tone of the shallowest indifference. "'There is no need to have the woman here all day. I shall do very well with Stevie.' She let the lonely clock on the landing count off fifteen ticks into the abyss of eternity, and asked, "'Shall I put the light out?' Mr. Verloc snapped at his wife huskily. "'Put it out.'" End of section 8「Section nine of the Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter nine Mr. Verloc, returning from the continent at the end of ten days, brought back a mind evidently unrefreshed by the wonders of foreign travel, and a countenance unlighted by the joys of homecoming. He entered in the clatter of the shop-bell with an air of sombre and vexed exhaustion. His bag in hand, his head lowered, he strode straight behind the counter, and let himself fall into the chair, as though he had tramped all the way from Dover. It was early morning. Stevie, dusting various objects displayed in the front windows, turned to gape at him with reverence and awe. "'Here,' said Mr. Verloc, giving a slight kick to the Gladstone bag on the floor, and Stevie flung himself upon it, seized it, bore it off with triumphant devotion. He was so prompt that Mr. Verloc was distinctly surprised. Already at the clatter of the shop-bell, Mrs. Neal, black-leading the parlour grate, had looked through the door, and, rising from her knees, had gone, aproned and grimy with everlasting toil, to tell Mrs. Verloc in the kitchen that there was the master come back. Winnie came no farther than the inner shop-door. "'You'll want some breakfast,' she said from a distance. Mr. Verloc moved his hands slightly, as if overcome by an impossible suggestion. But once enticed into the parlour, he did not reject the food set before him. He ate as if in a public place, his hat pushed off his forehead, the skirts of his heavy overcoat hanging in a triangle on each side of the chair. And across the length of the table, covered with brown oilcloth, Winnie, his wife, talked evenly at him the wifely talk, 
as artfully adapted, no doubt, to the circumstances of this return, as the talk of Penelope to the return of the wandering Odysseus. Mrs. Verloc, however, had done no weaving during her husband's absence. But she had had all the upstairs room cleaned thoroughly, had sold some wares, had seen Mr. Michaelis several times. He had told her the last time that he was going away to live in a cottage in the country, somewhere on the London Chatham and Dover line. Carl Yunt had come too, once, led under the arm by that wicked old housekeeper of his. He was a disgusting old man. Of Comrade Ossipon, whom she had received curtly, entrenched behind the counter with a stony face and a far-away gaze, she said nothing, her mental reference to the robust anarchist being marked by a short pause, with the faintest possible blush. And, bringing in her brother Stevie as soon as she could into the current of domestic events, she mentioned that the boy had moped a good deal. "'It's all along of mother leaving us like this.' Mr. Verloc neither said, "'Damn!' nor yet, "'Stevie be hanged!' And Mrs. Verloc, not let into the secret of his thoughts, failed to appreciate the generosity of this restraint. "'It isn't that he doesn't work as well as ever,' she continued. "'He's been making himself very useful. You'd think he couldn't do enough for us.' Mr. Verloc directed a casual and somnolent glance at Stevie, who sat on his right, delicate, pale-faced, his rosy mouth open vacantly. It was not a critical glance. It had no intention. And if Mr. Verloc thought for a moment that his wife's brother looked uncommonly useless, it was only a dull and fleeting thought, devoid of that force and durability which enables sometimes a thought to move the world. Leaning back, Mr. Verloc uncovered his head. Before his extended arm could put down the hat, Stevie pounced upon it, and bore it off reverently into the kitchen. And again Mr. Verloc was surprised. "'You could do anything with that boy, Adolf,' Mrs. Verloc said, with her best air of inflexible calmness. "'He would go through fire for you. He—' She paused attentive, her ear turned towards the door of the kitchen. There Mrs. Neal was scrubbing the floor. At Stevie's appearance she groaned lamentably, having observed that he could be induced easily to bestow for the benefit of her infant children the shilling his sister Winnie presented him with from time to time. On all fours amongst the puddles, wet and begrimed, like a sort of amphibious and domestic animal living in ash-bins and dirty water, she uttered the usual exordium. "'It's all very well for you, kept doing nothing like a gentleman.' And she followed it with the everlasting plaint of the poor, pathetically mendacious, miserably authenticated by the horrible breath of cheap rum and soapsuds. She scrubbed hard, snuffling all the time, and talking volubly. And she was sincere. And on each side of her thin red nose her bleared misty eyes swam in tears, because she felt really the want of some sort of stimulant in the morning. In the parlour Mrs. Verloc observed, with knowledge, "'There's Mrs. Neal at it again with her harrowing tales about her little children. They can't be all so little as she makes them out. Some of them must be big enough by now to try to do something for themselves. It only makes Stevie angry.' These words were confirmed by a thud, as of a fist striking the kitchen table. In the normal evolution of his sympathy, Stevie had become angry on discovering that he had no shilling in his pocket. 
in his inability to relieve at once Mrs. Neal's little uns privations, he felt that somebody should be made to suffer for it. Mrs. Verloc rose and went into the kitchen to stop that nonsense. And she did it firmly but gently. She was well aware that directly Mrs. Neal received her money she went round the corner to drink ardent spirits in a mean and musty public-house, the unavoidable station on the Via Dolorosa of her life. Mrs. Verloc's comment upon this practice had an unexpected profundity, as coming from a person disinclined to look under the surface of things. "'Of course, what is she to do to keep up? If I were like Mrs. Neal I expect I wouldn't act any different.' In the afternoon of the same day, as Mr. Verloc, coming with a start out of the last of a long series of dozes before the parlour fire, declared his intention of going out for a walk, Winnie said from the shop, "'I wish you would take that boy out with you, Adolf.' For the third time that day Mr. Verloc was surprised. He stared stupidly at his wife. She continued in her steady manner. The boy, whenever he was not doing anything, moped in the house. It made her uneasy, it made her nervous, she confessed. And that, from the calm Winnie, sounded like exaggeration. But in truth Stevie moped in the striking fashion of an unhappy domestic animal. He would go up on the dark landing, to sit on the floor at the foot of the tall clock, with his knees drawn up and his head in his hands. To come upon his pallid face, with its big eyes gleaming in the dusk, was discomposing. To think of him up there was uncomfortable. Mr. Verloc got used to the startling novelty of the idea. He was fond of his wife as a man should be, that is, generously. But a weighty objection presented itself to his mind, and he formulated it. "'He'll lose sight of me, perhaps, and get lost in the street,' he said. Mrs. Verloc shook her head competently. "'He won't. You don't know him. That boy just worships you. But if you should miss him—" Mrs. Verloc paused for a moment, but only for a moment. "'You just go on and have your walk out. Don't worry. He'll be all right. He's sure to turn up safe here before very long.' This optimism procured for Mr. Verloc his fourth surprise of the day. "'Is he?' he grunted doubtfully. But perhaps his brother-in-law was not such an idiot as he looked. His wife would know best. He turned away his heavy eyes, saying huskily, "'Well, let him come along, then,' and relapsed into the clutches of black care, that perhaps prefers to sit behind a horseman, but knows also how to tread close on the heels of people not sufficiently well off to keep horses, like Mr. Verloc, for instance. Winnie, at the shop door, did not see this fatal attendant upon Mr. Verloc's walks. She watched the two figures down the squalid street, one tall and burly, the other slight and short, with a thin neck, and the peaked shoulders raised slightly under the large semi-transparent ears. The material of their overcoats was the same, their hats were black and round in shape. Inspired by the similarity of wearing apparel, Mrs. Verloc gave rein to her fancy. "'Might be father and son,' she said to herself. She thought also that Mr. Verloc was as much of a father as poor Stevie ever had in his life. She was aware also that it was her work. And with peaceful pride she congratulated herself on a certain resolution she had taken a few years before. It had cost her some effort, and even a few tears. 
she congratulated herself still more on observing in the course of days that Mr. Verloc seemed to be taking kindly to Stevie's companionship. Now, when ready to go out for his walk, Mr. Verloc called aloud to the boy—in the spirit, no doubt, in which a man invites the attendance of the household dog, though of course in a different manner. In the house Mr. Verloc could be detected staring curiously at Stevie a good deal. His own demeanour had changed. Taciturn still, he was not so listless. Mrs. Verloc thought that he was rather jumpy at times. It might have been regarded as an improvement. As to Stevie, he moped no longer at the foot of the clock, but muttered to himself in corners instead in a threatening tone. When asked, "'What is it you're saying, Stevie?' he merely opened his mouth and squinted at his sister. At odd times he clenched his fists without apparent cause, and when discovered in solitude would be scowling at the wall, with the sheet of paper and the pencil given him for drawing circles, lying blank and idle on the kitchen table. This was a change, but it was no improvement. Mrs. Verloc, including all these vagaries under the general definition of excitement, began to fear that Stevie was hearing more than was good for him of her husband's conversations with his friends. During his walks, Mr. Verloc, of course, met and conversed with various persons. It could hardly be otherwise. His walks were an integral part of his outdoor activities, which his wife had never looked deeply into. Mrs. Verloc felt that the position was delicate, but she faced it with the same impenetrable calmness, which impressed and even astonished the customers of the shop, and made the other visitors keep their distance a little wonderingly. No, she feared that there were things not good for Stevie to hear of, she told her husband. It only excited the poor boy, because he could not help them being so. Nobody could. It was in the shop. Mr. Verloc made no comment. He made no retort, and yet the retort was obvious. But he refrained from pointing out to his wife that the idea of making Stevie the companion of his walks was her own and nobody else's. At that moment, to an impartial observer, Mr. Verloc would have appeared more than human in his magnanimity. He took down a small cardboard box from a shelf, peeped in to see that the contents were all right, and put it down gently on the counter. Not till that was done did he break the silence, to the effect that most likely Stevie would profit greatly by being sent out of town for a while, only he supposed his wife could not get on without him. "'Could not get on without him?' repeated Mrs. Verloc slowly. "'I couldn't get on without him if it were for his good. The idea! Of course I can get on without him. But there's nowhere for him to go.' Mr. Verloc got out some brown paper and a ball of string, and meanwhile he muttered that Michaelis was living in a little cottage in the country. Michaelis wouldn't mind giving Stevie a room to sleep in. There were no visitors and no talk there. Michaelis was writing a book. Mrs. Verloc declared her affection for Michaelis, mentioned her abhorrence of Karl Junt, nasty old man, and of Ossipon she said nothing. As to Stevie, he could be no other than very pleased. Mr. Michaelis was always so nice and kind to him. He seemed to like the boy. Well, the boy was a good boy. "'You two seem to have grown quite fond of him of late,' she added after a pause, with her inflexible assurance. Mr. Verloc, tying up the cardboard box into a parcel for the post, broke the string by an injudicious jerk. 
and muttered several swear-words confidentially to himself. Then, raising his tone to the usual husky mutter, he announced his willingness to take Stevie into the country himself, and leave him all safe with Michaelis. He carried out this scheme on the very next day. Stevie offered no objection. He seemed rather eager, in a bewildered sort of way. He turned his candid gaze inquisitively to Mr. Verloc's heavy countenance at frequent intervals, especially when his sister was not looking at him. His expression was proud, apprehensive and concentrated, like that of a small child entrusted for the first time with a box of matches and the permission to strike a light. But Mrs. Verloc, gratified by her brother's docility, recommended him not to dirty his clothes unduly in the country. At this Stevie gave his sister, guardian and protector, a look, which for the first time in his life seemed to lack the quality of perfect childlike trustfulness. It was haughtily gloomy. Mrs. Verloc smiled. "'Goodness me! You needn't be offended. You know you do get yourself very untidy when you get a chance, Stevie.' Mr. Verloc was already gone some way down the street. Thus, in consequence of her mother's heroic proceedings, and of her brother's absence on this villagiature, Mrs. Verloc found herself oftener than usual all alone, not only in the shop, but in the house. For Mr. Verloc had to take his walks. She was alone longer than usual on the day of the attempted bomb outrage in Greenwich Park, because Mr. Verloc went out very early that morning, and did not come back till nearly dusk. She did not mind being alone. She had no desire to go out. The weather was too bad, and the shop was cosier than the streets. Sitting behind the counter with some sewing, she did not raise her eyes from her work, when Mr. Verloc entered in the aggressive clatter of the bell. She had recognised his step on the pavement outside. She did not raise her eyes, but as Mr. Verloc, silent and with his hat rammed down upon his forehead, made straight for the parlour door, she said serenely, "'What a wretched day! You've been, perhaps, to see Stevie?' "'No, I haven't,' said Mr. Verloc softly, and slammed the glazed parlour door behind him with unexpected energy. For some time Mrs. Verloc remained quiescent, with her work dropped in her lap, before she put it away under the counter and got up to light the gas. This done, she went into the parlour on her way to the kitchen. Mr. Verloc would want his tea presently. Confident of the power of her charms, Winnie did not expect from her husband in the daily intercourse of their married life a ceremonious amenity of address and courtliness of manner—vain and antiquated forms at best, probably never very exactly observed, discarded nowadays even in the highest spheres, and always foreign to the standards of her class. She did not look for courtesies from him. But he was a good husband and she had a loyal respect for his rights. Mrs. Verloc would have gone through the parlour and on to her domestic duties in the kitchen, with the perfect serenity of a woman sure of the power of her charms. But a slight, very slight, and rapid rattling sound grew upon her hearing. Bizarre and incomprehensible, it arrested Mrs. Verloc's attention. Then, as its character became plain to the ear, she stopped short, amazed and concerned. Striking a match on the box she held in her hand, she turned on and lighted, above the parlour-table, one of the two gas-burners, which, being defective, first whistled as if astonished, 
and then went on purring comfortably like a cat. Mr. Verloc, against his usual practice, had thrown off his overcoat. It was lying on the sofa. His hat, which he must also have thrown off, rested overturned under the edge of the sofa. He had dragged a chair in front of the fireplace, and his feet planted inside the fender, his head held between his hands, he was hanging low over the glowing grate. His teeth rattled with an ungovernable violence, causing his whole enormous back to tremble at the same rate. Mrs. Verloc was startled. "'You've been getting wet,' she said. "'Not very,' Mr. Verloc managed to falter out, in a profound shudder. By a great effort he suppressed the rattling of his teeth. "'I'll have you laid up on my hands,' she said, with genuine uneasiness. "'I don't think so,' remarked Mr. Verloc, snuffling huskily. He had certainly contrived somehow to catch an abominable cold between seven in the morning and five in the afternoon. Mrs. Verloc looked at his bowed back. "'Where have you been to-day?' she asked. "'Nowhere,' answered Mr. Verloc, in a low, choked, nasal tone. His attitude suggested aggrieved sulks or a severe headache. The unsufficiency and uncandidness of his answer became painfully apparent in the dead silence of the room. He snuffled apologetically and added, "'I've been to the bank.' Mrs. Verloc became attentive. "'You have?' she said dispassionately. "'What for?' Mr. Verloc mumbled, with his nose over the grate, and with marked unwillingness. "'Draw the money out.' "'What do you mean? All of it?' "'Yes, all of it.' Mrs. Verloc spread out with care the scanty tablecloth, got two knives and two forks out of the table-drawer, and suddenly stopped in her methodical proceedings. "'What did you do that for?' "'May want it soon.' snuffled vaguely Mr. Verloc, who was coming to the end of his calculated indiscretions. "'I don't know what you mean,' remarked his wife, in a tone perfectly casual, but standing stock-still between the table and the cupboard. "'You know you can trust me,' Mr. Verloc remarked to the grate, with hoarse feeling. Mrs. Verloc turned slowly towards the cupboard, saying with deliberation, "'Oh, yes, I can trust you.' And she went on with her methodical proceedings. She laid two plates, got the bread, the butter, going to and fro quietly between the table and the cupboard in the peace and silence of her home. On the point of taking out the jam, she reflected practically, he will be feeling hungry, having been away all day, and she returned to the cupboard once more to get the cold beef. She set it under the purring gas-jet, and with a passing glance at her motionless husband hugging the fire, she went, down two steps, into the kitchen. It was only when coming back, carving-knife and fork in hand, that she spoke again. "'If I hadn't trusted you, I wouldn't have married you.' Bowed under the overmantel, Mr. Verloc, holding his head in both hands, seemed to have gone to sleep. Winnie made the tea, and called out in an undertone, "'Adolf!' Mr. Verloc got up at once, and staggered a little before he sat down at the table. His wife, examining the sharp edge of the carving-knife, placed it on the dish, and called his attention to the cold beef. He remained insensible to the suggestion, with his chin on his breast. "'You should feed your cold,' Mrs. Verloc said dogmatically. He looked up and shook his head. 
His eyes were bloodshot and his face red. His fingers had ruffled his hair into a dissipated untidiness. Altogether he had a disreputable aspect, expressive of the discomfort, the irritation, and the gloom following a heavy debauch. But Mr. Verloc was not a debauched man. In his conduct he was respectable. His appearance might have been the effect of a feverish cold. He drank three cups of tea, but abstained from food entirely. He recoiled from it with sombre aversion when urged by Mrs. Verloc, who said at last, "'Aren't your feet wet? You had better put on your slippers. You aren't going out any more this evening.' Mr. Verloc intimated by morose grunts and signs that his feet were not wet, and that anyhow he did not care. The proposal as to slippers was disregarded as beneath his notice. But the question of going out in the evening received an unexpected development. It was not of going out in the evening that Mr. Verloc was thinking. His thoughts embraced a vaster scheme. From moody and incomplete phrases it became apparent that Mr. Verloc had been considering the expediency of emigrating. It was not very clear whether he had in his mind France or California. The utter unexpectedness, improbability, and inconceivableness of such an event robbed this vague declaration of all its effect. Mrs. Verloc, as placidly as if her husband had been threatening her with the end of the world, said, "'The idea!' Mr. Verloc declared himself sick and tired of everything, and besides—she interrupted him—'You've a bad cold!' It was indeed obvious that Mr. Verloc was not in his usual state, physically and even mentally. A sombre irresolution held him silent for a while. Then he murmured a few ominous generalities on the theme of necessity. "'We'll have to,' repeated Winnie, sitting calmly back with folded arms opposite her husband. "'I should like to know who's to make you. You ain't a slave. No one need be a slave in this country, and don't you make yourself one.' She paused, and with invincible and steady candour. "'The business isn't so bad,' she went on. "'You've a comfortable home.' She glanced all round the parlour, from the corner cupboard to the good fire in the grate. Ensconced cosily behind the shop of doubtful wares, with the mysteriously dim window, and its door suspiciously ajar in the obscure and narrow street, it was in all essentials of domestic propriety and domestic comfort a respectable home. Her devoted affection missed out of it her brother Stevie now enjoying a damp villagiature in the Kentish lanes under the care of Mr. Michaelis. She missed him poignantly, with all the force of her protecting passion. This was the boy's home, too—the roof, the cupboard, the stoked grate. On this thought Mrs. Verloc rose, and walking to the other end of the table, said in the fullness of her heart, "'And you are not tired of me?' Mr. Verloc made no sound. Winnie leaned on his shoulder from behind, and pressed her lips to his forehead. Thus she lingered. Not a whisper reached them from the outside world. The sound of footsteps on the pavement died out in the discreet dimness of the shop. Only the gas-jet above the table went on purring equably in the brooding silence of the parlour. During the contact of that unexpected and lingering kiss, Mr. Verloc, gripping with both hands the edges of his chair, preserved a hieratic immobility. When the pressure was removed he let go the chair, 
rose and went to stand before the fireplace. He turned no longer his back to the room. With his features swollen and an air of being drugged, he followed his wife's movements with his eyes. Mrs. Verloc went about serenely, clearing up the table. Her tranquil voice commented the idea thrown out in a reasonable and domestic tone. It wouldn't stand examination. She condemned it from every point of view. But her only real concern was Stevie's welfare. He appeared to her thought in that connection as sufficiently peculiar not to be taken rashly abroad. And that was all. But talking round that vital point, she approached absolute vehemence in her delivery. Meanwhile, with brisk movements, she arrayed herself in an apron for the washing up of cups. And, as if excited by the sound of her uncontradicted voice, she went so far as to say in a tone almost tart, "'If you go abroad, you'll have to go without me.' "'You know I wouldn't,' said Mr. Verloc huskily, and the unresonant voice of his private life trembled with an enigmatic emotion. Already Mrs. Verloc was regretting her words. They had sounded more unkind than she meant them to be. They had also the unwisdom of unnecessary things. In fact, she had not meant them at all. It was a sort of phrase that is suggested by the demon of perverse inspiration. But she knew a way to make it as if it had not been. She turned her head over her shoulder, and gave that man planted heavily in front of the fireplace a glance, half arch, half cruel, out of her large eyes a glance of which the Winnie of the Belgravian mansion days would have been incapable, because of her respectability and her ignorance. But the man was her husband now, and she was no longer ignorant. She kept it on him for a whole second, with her grave face motionless like a mask, while she said playfully, "'You couldn't. You would miss me too much.' Mr. Verloc started forward. "'Exactly.' he said in a louder tone, throwing his arms out and making a step towards her. Something wild and doubtful in his expression made it appear uncertain whether he meant to strangle or to embrace his wife. But Mrs. Verloc's attention was called away from that manifestation by the clatter of the shop bell. "'Shop, Adolf, you go.' He stopped. His arms came down slowly. "'You go,' repeated Mrs. Verloc. I've got my apron on." Mr. Verloc obeyed woodenly, stony-eyed, and like an automaton whose face had been painted red. And this resemblance to a mechanical figure went so far that he had an automaton's absurd air of being aware of the machinery inside of him. He closed the parlour door, and Mrs. Verloc, moving briskly, carried the tray into the kitchen. She washed the cups and some other things before she stopped in her work to listen. No sound reached her. The customer was a long time in the shop. It was a customer, because if he had not been, Mr. Verloc would have taken him inside. Undoing the strings of her apron with a jerk, she threw it on a chair and walked back to the parlour slowly. At that precise moment Mr. Verloc entered from the shop. He had gone in red. He came out a strange papery white. His face— losing its drugged, feverish stupor, had, in that short time, acquired a bewildered and harassed expression. He walked straight to the sofa, and stood looking down at his overcoat lying there, 
as though he were afraid to touch it. "'What's the matter?' asked Mrs. Verloc, in a subdued voice. Through the door left ajar she could see that the customer was not gone yet. "'I find I'll have to go out this evening,' said Mr. Verloc. He did not attempt to pick up his outer garment. Without a word Winnie made for the shop, and, shutting the door after her, walked in behind the counter. She did not look overtly at the customer till she had established herself comfortably on the chair. But by that time she had noted that he was tall and thin, and wore his moustaches twisted up. In fact, he gave the sharp points a twist just then. His long, bony face rose up out of a turned-up collar. He was a little splashed, a little wet. A dark man, with the ridge of the cheekbone well defined under the slightly hollow temple. A complete stranger. Not a customer, either. Mrs. Verloc looked at him placidly. "'You came over from the Continent,' she said, after a time. The long, thin stranger, without exactly looking at Mrs. Verloc, answered only by a faint and peculiar smile. Mrs. Verloc's steady, incurious gaze rested on him. "'You understand English, don't you?' "'Oh, yes, I understand English.' There was nothing foreign in his accent, except that he seemed, in his slow enunciation, to be taking pains with it. And Mrs. Verloc, in her varied experience, had come to the conclusion that some foreigners could speak better English than the natives. She said, looking at the door of the parlour fixedly, "'You don't think, perhaps, of staying in England for good?' The stranger gave her again a silent smile. He had a kindly mouth and probing eyes. And he shook his head a little sadly, it seemed. "'My husband will see you through all right. Meantime, for a few days, you couldn't do better than to take lodgings with Mr. Giuliani. Continental Hotel, it's called. Private. It's quiet. My husband will take you there.' "'A good idea,' said the thin, dark man, whose glance had hardened suddenly. "'You knew Mr. Verloc before, didn't you? Perhaps in France?' "'I have heard of him,' admitted the visitor in his slow, painstaking tone, which yet had a certain curtness of intention. There was a pause. Then he spoke again in a far less elaborate manner. "'Your husband has not gone out to wait for me in the street, by chance?' "'In the street?' repeated Mrs. Verloc, surprised. "'He couldn't. There's no other door to the house.' For a moment she sat impassive, then left her seat to go and peep through the glazed door. Suddenly she opened it and disappeared into the parlour. Mr. Verloc had done no more than put on his overcoat. But why he should remain afterwards leaning over the table, propped up on his two arms as though he were feeling giddy or sick, she could not understand. "'Adolf?' she called out half aloud, and when he had raised himself. "'Do you know that man?' she asked rapidly. "'I've heard of him,' whispered uneasily Mr. Verloc, darting a wild glance at the door. Mrs. Verloc's fine, incurious eyes lighted up with a flash of abhorrence. "'One of Karl Junt's friends! Beastly old man!' "'No, no!' protested Mr. Verloc, busy fishing for his hat but when he got it from under the sofa, he held it as if he did not know the use of a hat. "'Well, he's waiting for you,' said Mrs. Verloc at last. "'I say, Adolf, he ain't one of them embassy people you have been bothered with of late.' 
bothered with embassy people," repeated Mr. Verloc, with a heavy start of surprise and fear. "'Who's been talking to you of the embassy people?' "'Yourself.' "'I? I? Talked of the embassy to you?' Mr. Verloc seemed scared and bewildered beyond measure. His wife explained. "'You've been talking a little in your sleep of late, Adolf.' "'What—what what did I say? What do you know?' "'Nothing much. It seemed mostly nonsense. Enough to let me guess that something worried you.' Mr. Verloc rammed his hat on his head. A crimson flood of anger ran over his face. "'Nonsense, eh? The Embassy people. I would cut their hearts out one after another. But let them look out. I've a tongue in my head.' He fumed, pacing up and down between the table and the sofa, his open overcoat catching against the angles. The red flood of anger ebbed out, and left his face all white, with quivering nostrils. Mrs. Verloc, for the purposes of practical existence, put down these appearances to the cold. "'Well,' she said, "'get rid of the man, whoever he is, as soon as you can, and come back home to me. You want looking after for a day or two. Mr. Verloc calmed down, and, with resolution imprinted on his pale face, had already opened the door, when his wife called him back in a whisper. "'Adolf! Adolf!' He came back startled. "'What about that money you drew out?' she asked. "'You've got it in your pocket. Hadn't you better—' Mr. Verloc gazed stupidly into the palm of his wife's extended hand for some time, before he slapped his brow. "'Money! Yes! Yes! I didn't know what you meant!' He drew out of his breast-pocket a new pigskin pocket-book. Mrs. Verloc received it without another word, and stood still till the bell, clattering after Mr. Verloc and Mr. Verloc's visitor, had quieted down. Only then she peeped in at the amount, drawing the notes out for the purpose. After this inspection she looked round thoughtfully, with an air of mistrust in the silence and solitude of the house. This abode of her married life appeared to her as lonely and unsafe as though it had been situated in the midst of a forest. No receptacle she could think of amongst the solid, heavy furniture seemed other but flimsy and particularly tempting to her conception of a housebreaker. It was an ideal conception, endowed with sublime faculties and a miraculous insight. The till was not to be thought of. It was the first spot a thief would make for. Mrs. Verloc, unfastening hastily a couple of hooks, slipped the pocket-book under the bodice of her dress. Having thus disposed of her husband's capital, she was rather glad to hear the clatter of the door-bell announcing an arrival. Assuming the fixed, unabashed stare, and the stony expression reserved for the casual customer, she walked in behind the counter. A man standing in the middle of the shop was inspecting it with a swift, cool, all-round glance. His eyes ran over the walls, took in the ceiling, noted the floor, all in a moment. The points of a long, fair moustache fell below the line of the jaw. He smiled the smile of an old, if distant, acquaintance, and Mrs. Verloc remembered having seen him before. Not a customer. She softened her customer stare to mere indifference, and faced him across the counter. He approached on his side confidentially, but not too markedly so. "'Husband at home, Mrs. Verloc?' he asked, in an easy, full tone. "'No, he's gone out.' 
I'm sorry for that. I've called to get from him a little private information." This was the exact truth. Chief Inspector Heat had been all the way home, and had even gone so far as to think of getting into his slippers, since practically he was, he told himself, chucked out of that case. He indulged in some scornful, and in a few angry thoughts, and found the occupation so unsatisfactory that he resolved to seek relief out of doors. Nothing prevented him paying a friendly call to Mr. Verloc, casually, as it were. It was in the character of a private citizen, that walking out privately he made use of his customary conveyances. Their general direction was towards Mr. Verloc's home. Chief Inspector Heat respected his own private character so consistently that he took especial pains to avoid all the police constables on point and patrol duty in the vicinity of Brett Street. This precaution was much more necessary for a man of his standing than for an obscure assistant commissioner. Private Citizen Heat entered the street, manoeuvring in a way which in a member of the criminal classes would have been stigmatised as slinking. The piece of cloth picked up in Greenwich was in his pocket. Not that he had the slightest intention of producing it in his private capacity. On the contrary, he wanted to know just what Mr. Verloc would be disposed to say voluntarily. He hoped Mr. Verloc's talk would be of a nature to incriminate Michaelis. It was a conscientiously professional hope in the main, but not without its moral value. For Chief Inspector Heat was a servant of justice. Finding Mr. Verloc from home, he felt disappointed. "'I would wait for him a little if I were sure he wouldn't be long,' he said. Mrs. Verloc volunteered no assurance of any kind. "'The information I need is quite private.' he repeated. You understand what I mean? I wonder if you could give me a notion where he's gone to." Mrs. Verloc shook her head. "'Can't say.' She turned away to range some boxes on the shelves behind the counter. Chief Inspector Heat looked at her thoughtfully for a time. "'I suppose you know who I am,' he said. Mrs. Verloc glanced over her shoulder. Chief Inspector Heat was amazed at her coolness. "'Come, you know I am in the police,' he said sharply. "'I don't trouble my head much about it,' Mrs. Verloc remarked, returning to the ranging of her boxes. "'My name is Heat, Chief Inspector Heat of the Special Crimes Section.' Mrs. Verloc adjusted nicely in its place a small cardboard box, and, turning round, faced him again, heavy-eyed, with idle hands hanging down. A silence reigned for a time. So your husband went out a quarter of an hour ago, and he didn't say when he would be back?" "'He didn't go out alone,' Mrs. Verloc let fall negligently. "'A friend?' Mrs. Verloc touched the back of her hair. It was in perfect order. "'A stranger who called.' "'I see. What sort of man was that stranger? Would you mind telling me?' Mrs. Verloc did not mind. And when Chief Inspector Heat heard of a man, dark, thin, with a long face and turned-up moustaches, he gave signs of perturbation, and exclaimed, "'Dash me if I didn't think so! He hasn't lost any time!' He was intensely disgusted in the secrecy of his heart at the unofficial conduct of his immediate chief. But he was not quixotic. He lost all desire to await Mr. Verloc's return. What they had gone out for he did not know, but he imagined it possible that they would return together. 
The case is not being followed properly. It's being tampered with, he thought bitterly. "'I'm afraid I haven't time to wait for your husband,' he said. Mrs. Verloc received this declaration listlessly. Her detachment had impressed Chief Inspector Heat all along. At this precise moment it whetted his curiosity. Chief Inspector Heat hung in the wind, swayed by his passions like the most private of citizens. "'I think,' he said, looking at her steadily, "'that you could give me a pretty good notion of what's going on, if you liked.' Forcing her fine, inert eyes to return his gaze, Mrs. Verloc murmured, "'Going on? What is going on?' "'Why, the affair I came to talk about a little with your husband.' That day Mrs. Verloc had glanced at a morning paper as usual. But she had not stirred out of doors. The newsboys never invaded Brett Street. It was not a street for their business. And the echo of their cries drifting along the populous thoroughfares expired between the dirty brick walls without reaching the threshold of the shop. Her husband had not brought an evening paper home. At any rate she had not seen it. Mrs. Verloc knew nothing whatever of any affair and she said so, with a genuine note of wonder in her quiet voice. Chief Inspector Heat did not believe for a moment in so much ignorance. Curtly, without amiability, he stated the bare fact. Mrs. Verloc turned away her eyes. "'I call it silly,' she pronounced slowly. She paused. "'We ain't downtrodden slaves here.' The Chief Inspector waited watchfully. Nothing more came. And your husband didn't mention anything to you when he came home?" Mrs. Verloc simply turned her face from right to left in sign of negation. A languid, baffling silence reigned in the shop. Chief Inspector Heat felt provoked beyond endurance. "'There was another small matter,' he began in a detached tone, "'which I wanted to speak to your husband about. There came into our hands a—a—what we believe is a stolen overcoat. Mrs. Verloc, with her mind specially aware of thieves that evening, touched lightly the bosom of her dress. "'We have lost no overcoat,' she said calmly. "'That's funny,' continued Private Citizen Heat. "'I see you keep a lot of marking ink here.' He took up a small bottle, and looked at it against the gas-jet in the middle of the shop. "'Purple, isn't it?' he remarked, setting it down again. As I said, it's strange, because the overcoat has got a label sewn on the inside, with your address written in marking ink." Mrs. Verloc leaned over the counter with a low exclamation. "'That's my brother's, then.' "'Where's your brother? Can I see him?' asked the Chief Inspector briskly. Mrs. Verloc leaned a little more over the counter. "'No, he isn't here. I wrote that label myself.' "'Where's your brother now?' He's been away living with—a friend—in the country." "'The overcoat comes from the country. And what's the name of the friend?' "'Michaelis,' confessed Mrs. Verloc, in an awed whisper. The Chief Inspector let out a whistle. His eyes snapped. "'Just so. Capital. And your brother now, what's he like? A sturdy, darkish chap, eh?' "'Oh, no!' exclaimed Mrs. Verloc fervently. "'That must be the thief. Stevie's slight and fair." "'Good,' said the Chief Inspector, in an approving tone. And while Mrs. Verloc, 
wavering between alarm and wonder, stared at him, he sought for information. Why have the address sewn like this inside the coat? And he heard that the mangled remains he had inspected that morning with extreme repugnance were those of a youth, nervous, absent-minded, peculiar, and also that the woman who was speaking to him had had the charge of that boy since he was a baby. "'Easily excitable,' he suggested. "'Oh, yes, he is. But how did he come to lose his coat?' Chief Inspector Heat suddenly pulled out a pink newspaper he had bought less than half an hour ago. He was interested in horses. Forced by his calling into an attitude of doubt and suspicion towards his fellow-citizens, Chief Inspector Heat relieved the instinct of credulity implanted in the human breast by putting unbounded faith in the sporting profits of that particular evening publication. Dropping the extra special onto the counter, he plunged his hand again into his pocket, and pulling out the piece of cloth fate had presented him with, out of a heap of things that seemed to have been collected in shambles and rag-shops, he offered it to Mrs. Verloc for inspection. "'I suppose you recognise this?' She took it mechanically in both her hands. Her eyes seemed to grow bigger as she looked. "'Yes,' she whispered, then raised her head and staggered backward a little. "'Whatever for is it torn out like this?' The chief inspector snatched across the counter the cloth out of her hands, and she sat heavily on the chair. He thought, identification's perfect. And in that moment he had a glimpse into the whole amazing truth. Verloc was the other man. "'Mrs. Verloc,' he said, "'it strikes me that you know more of this bomb affair than even you yourself are aware of.' Mrs. Verloc sat still, amazed, lost in boundless astonishment. What was the connection? And she became so rigid all over that she was not able to turn her head at the clatter of the bell, which caused the private investigator Heat to spin round on his heel. Mr. Verloc had shut the door, and for a moment the two men looked at each other. Mr. Verloc, without looking at his wife, walked up to the chief inspector, who was relieved to see him return alone. "'You here?' muttered Mr. Verloc heavily. "'Who are you after?' "'No one,' said Chief Inspector Heat in a low tone. "'Look here, I would like a word or two with you.' Mr. Verloc, still pale, had brought an air of resolution with him. Still he didn't look at his wife. He said, "'Come in here, then,' and he led the way into the parlour. The door was hardly shut when Mrs. Verloc, jumping up from the chair, ran to it as if to fling it open, but instead of doing so fell on her knees, with her ear to the keyhole. The two men must have stopped directly they were through, because she heard plainly the chief inspector's voice, though she could not see his finger pressed against her husband's breast emphatically. "'You are the other man, Verloc. Two men were seen entering the park.' And the voice of Mr. Verloc said, "'Well, take me now. What's to prevent you? You have the right.' "'Oh, no! I know too well who you have been giving yourself away to. He'll have to manage this little affair all by himself. But don't you make a mistake. It's I who found you out.' Then she heard only muttering. Inspector Heat must have been showing to Mr. Verloc the piece of Stevie's overcoat, because Stevie's sister, guardian and protector, heard her husband a little louder. I never noticed that she had hit upon that dodge. 
Again, for a time, Mrs. Verloc heard nothing but murmurs, whose mysteriousness was less nightmarish to her brain than the horrible suggestions of shaped words. Then Chief Inspector Heat, on the other side of the door, raised his voice. "'You must have been mad!' And Mr. Verloc's voice answered, with a sort of gloomy fury, "'I have been mad for a month or more, but I am not mad now. It's all over. It shall all come out of my head and hang the consequences.' There was a silence, and then Private Citizen Heat murmured, "'What's coming out?' "'Everything.' exclaimed the voice of Mr. Verloc, and then sank very low. After a while it rose again. "'You have known me for several years now, and you found me useful, too. You know I was a straight man. Yes, straight.' This appeal to old acquaintance must have been extremely distasteful to the Chief Inspector. His voice took on a warning note. "'Don't you trust so much to what you have been promised? If I were you I would clear out.' I don't think we will run after you." Mr. Verloc was heard to laugh a little. "'Oh, yes. You hope the others will get rid of me for you, don't you? No, no. You don't shake me off now. I have been a straight man to those people too long, and now everything must come out.' "'Let it come out, then,' the indifferent voice of Chief Inspector Heat assented. "'But tell me now, how did you get away?' "'I was making for Chesterfield Walk,' Mrs. Verloc heard her husband's voice when I heard the bang. I started running then. Fog! I saw no one till I was past the end of George Street. Don't think I met any one till then." "'So easy as that,' marvelled the voice of Chief Inspector Heat. "'The bang startled you, eh?' "'Yes. It came too soon,' confessed the gloomy, husky voice of Mr. Verloc. Mrs. Verloc pressed her ear to the keyhole. Her lips were blue her hands cold as ice, and her pale face, in which the two eyes seemed like two black holes, felt to her as if it were enveloped in flames. On the other side of the door the voices sank very low. She caught words now and then, sometimes in her husband's voice, sometimes in the smooth tones of the chief inspector. She heard this last say, "'We believe he stumbled against the root of a tree.' There was a husky, voluble murmur which lasted for some time, and then the Chief Inspector, as if answering some inquiry, spoke emphatically. "'Of course. Blown to small bits. Limbs, gravel, clothing, bones, splinters, all mixed up together. I tell you, they had to fetch a shovel to gather him up with.' Mrs. Verloc sprang up suddenly from her crouching position, and, stopping her ears, reeled to and fro between the counter and the shelves on the wall towards the chair. Her crazed eyes noted the sporting-sheet left by the Chief Inspector, and as she knocked herself against the counter she snatched it up, fell into the chair, tore the optimistic rosy sheet right across in trying to open it, then flung it on the floor. On the other side of the door Chief Inspector Heat was saying to Mr. Verloc, the secret agent, so your defence will be practically a full confession. It will. I am going to tell the whole story. You won't be believed as much as you fancy you will." And the Chief Inspector remained thoughtful. The turn this affair was taking meant the disclosure of many things, the laying waste of fields of knowledge, which, cultivated by a capable man, had a distinct value for the individual and for the society. 
it was sorry, sorry meddling. It would leave Michaelis unscathed, it would drag to light the Professor's home industry, disorganise the whole system of supervision, make no end of a row in the papers, which, from that point of view, appeared to him by a sudden illumination as invariably written by fools for the reading of imbeciles. Mentally he agreed with the words Mr. Verloc let fall at last, in answer to his last remark. "'Perhaps not. But it will upset many things. I have been a straight man, and I shall keep straight in this.' "'If they let you,' said the Chief Inspector cynically, "'you will be preached to, no doubt, before they put you into the dock. And in the end you may yet get let in for a sentence that will surprise you. I wouldn't trust too much the gentleman who's been talking to you.' Mr. Verloc listened, frowning. "'My advice to you is to clear out while you may. I have no instructions.' "'There are some of them,' continued Chief Inspector Heat, laying a peculiar stress on the word them, "'who think you are already out of the world.' "'Indeed,' Mr. Verloc was moved to say. Though since his return from Greenwich he had spent most of his time sitting in the tap-room of an obscure little public-house, he could hardly have hoped for such favourable news. "'That's the impression about you,' the Chief Inspector nodded at him. "'Vanish. Clear out.' "'Where to?' snarled Mr. Verloc. He raised his head, and, gazing at the closed door of the parlour, muttered feelingly, "'I only wish you would take me away to-night. I would go quietly.' "'I dare say,' assented sardonically the Chief Inspector, following the direction of his glance. The brow of Mr. Verloc broke into slight moisture. He lowered his husky voice confidentially before the unmoved Chief Inspector. The lad was half-witted, irresponsible. Any court would have seen that at once, only fit for the asylum, and that was the worst that would have happened to him if— The Chief Inspector, his hand on the door-handle, whispered into Mr. Verloc's face. He may have been half-witted, but you must have been crazy. What drove you off your head like this?" Mr. Verloc, thinking of Mr. Vladimir, did not hesitate in the choice of words. "'A hyperborean swine,' he hissed forcibly. "'A what you might call a, a gentleman.' The Chief Inspector, steady-eyed, nodded briefly his comprehension, and opened the door. Mrs. Verloc, behind the counter, might have heard, but did not see, his departure, pursued by the aggressive clatter of the bell. She sat at her post of duty behind the counter. She sat rigidly erect in the chair, with two dirty pink pieces of paper lying spread out at her feet. The palms of her hands were pressed convulsively to her face, with the tips of the fingers contracted against the forehead, as though the skin had been a mask which she was ready to tear off violently. The perfect immobility of her pose expressed the agitation of rage and despair, all the potential violence of tragic passions, better than any shallow display of shrieks, with the beating of a distracted head against the walls, could have done. Chief Inspector Heat, crossing the shop at his busy, swinging pace, gave her only a cursory glance. And when the cracked bell ceased to tremble on its curved ribbon of steel, nothing stirred near Mrs. Verloc as if her attitude had the locking power of a spell. Even the butterfly-shaped gas-flames posed on the ends of the suspended tea-bracket burned without a quiver. 
in that shop of shady wares, fitted with deal shelves painted a dull brown, which seemed to devour the sheen of the light, the gold circlet of the wedding-ring on Mrs. Verloc's left hand glittered exceedingly, with the untarnished glory of a piece from some splendid treasure of jewels, dropped in a dustbin. End of section 9everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price ba-da-ba-ba-ba